So there are really only a handful of filmmakers who have been right in the thick of indie filmmaking since it truly took over in the early 90s. And my guest today is one of them. Ed Burns burst onto the scene the way very few others ever have through Sundance, through DIY filmmaking, back in that heyday of it in the early to mid-90s. He continued to thrive as that kind of filmmaker, also turned into a movie star along the way. And we have him today to talk about his recent film, Summer Days and Summer Nights. But what's so great about Ed, besides his voice and his charisma and his talent, is his knowledge and his continued DIY approach. The guy knows the art of the compromise on set and what you can lose and can't lose and how to collaborate and get done what you need to get done. He's just full of insights and experience and wisdom. And he was a great guest to have on the show. So here we go, Ed Burns. Thanks so much again for coming on and doing this. Really excited to have you as a guest on the No Film School podcast, not just to talk about this movie, but because you are such a, an important figure in indie filmmaking and DIY filmmaking and building careers in unique ways and continuing to find ways to make movies that you want to make that are personal, like this one, um, Summer Days, Summer Nights, I think it's personal, right? Somewhat? Uh, it's somewhat, not so much autobiographical, but like, you know, I worked in that beach club where Debbie and JJ work, you know, I, I parked cars as well in high school. You know, I used to swim out to those bay houses. I fished uh, right outside of that marina where Winky works. So it's personal in that I pulled almost every location in the film has some personal connection to me and my childhood. And is that like fairly standard for you when it comes to the ones you write, direct, produce, you know, when you're really like the triple threat that you've been since really Brothers McMullen often, like, are you the... It, does it have to connect on some level for you to invest in that way? You know, it really depends. And I, and I don't know that any two films are, are the same. You know, like for me, uh, the scripts and the ideas for these films can come from a number of different places. You know, McMullen was really, you know, I, I knew after seeing El Mariachi and Clerks and Laws of Gravity and Slacker that, oh, wait, you can make a you know, uh, a feature film for under $50,000 and start your career that way. So, you know, that script, I sat down and just, you know, what are the resources I have and the locations I could get for free and kind of made a list of that. And then the screenplay was sort of born out of that. Right. You know, I made another, you know, sort of micro budget movie years ago called Newlyweds. And that was born out of um, a conversation with, at, at the time I was married about 10 years bunch of my friends were, uh, you know, we're out with some couples. They were married for about 10 years and someone made a crack about, you know, well, hey, look, in this day and age, 10 years, I think you could consider it a success. <laughs> and I was just like, oh, okay, that's interesting, maybe. And that, that got me thinking about a movie about couples who are hitting that 10-year that spot. So, you know, summertime, interestingly, started, you know, from about four different places. First was my son had just gotten into the Beatles 
And, you know, was loving those early Beatles albums. Uh, so we were listening to that all the time. And, uh, you know, like songs like Eight Days a Week and I Want to Hold Your Hand, like they just put you in such a good mood that I was like, I want to make a film that could hopefully do the same thing. You know, there was a uh, hopefulness to them, a certain innocence to them, a, you know, uh, kind of like this nostalgic romance to them. So that's kind of one thing that was in my head. The other thing is, you know, my kids were younger then and, you know, all of my movies are rated R, even though, huh. you know, they have no violence, but the language, you know, there's, I guess, too many F-bombs. So they were all- Or they're just, R. they're about adults. So, you know, yeah. <laughs> violence is one thing, but stuff about grownups and grownup issues, that's a whole- <laughs> That's a whole other thing, yeah. So I wanted to make a movie that was PG-13. Right, quite honestly. So I kind of, I had those two ideas in my head and, you know, just started to walk around with that. And then I came up with this idea of a movie where it took place in the summer and the, the framework, I could use the three American sort of summer holidays. So with all of that in my head, the, the, the last piece to the puzzle, if you will, was, you know, I, I have a, you know, on my notes app on my phone, you know, I've got the movies I want to make list. And oh, wow. You know, How many are crossed off? Are there a lot left? <laughs> oh, there's a, you know, I mean, every day you come up with three more, you know, a lot of them are half-baked ideas, but I, for a long time, I wanted to do my version of American Graffiti. Yeah. You know, was so I was, those... I've been thinking that this whole time as you've been talking. Oh, okay. yeah. Yeah, so yeah. you segued on your own. <laughs> so that was kind of when, when I hit that, I was like, oh, okay. So maybe there's a way I can marry all of those ideas. And that's, that's kind of, that was the launching off point for it. And then I'd say the last thing I did was sort of all of those locations I mentioned in, you know, when we first started speaking, I kind of like, all right, so this American graffiti idea, if I want it to, if I'm going to set it in, in the past, I kind of wanted it to be a love letter to, you know, the, the summers on Long Island that I remember, right. but also make it a, the summer that we wish we all could have had. There's so something about these kinds of movies, these coming of age, it's a, it's a genre, subgenre, whatever you want to call it, that are universal even if they're super specific. It's crazy, right? Like yep. it's super specific to you. And yet just like graffiti is specific to George Lucas, there's universal aspects that we can all relate to or Dazed and Confused is another one that comes Without to mind. Doubt, yeah. but, but when I thought of you talking about the music, the feeling you got from that kind of music that you wanted to replicate in a cinematic experience, I thought that sounds a lot like what I think American Graffiti does or tries to do. Without a doubt. And again, you know, like, like American Graffiti, you know, the thing that I knew I wanted to do with this film was to put together, you know, not quite the same kind of wall to wall soundtrack that Lucas was able to put mm. together for that film, but, to make sure that we picked a, a a soundtrack that was representative of the time, but of, you know, a bunch of different genres that you would have been listening to in 1982 and not just have it be the typical 80s music. Yeah. Like, you know, like, like we have, we have the Go-Go's in there and I think that's what you, you would expect. Yeah, some trailer music, some of those needle drops, but also yeah, some but we tried to cuts. mix it up with a good, uh, good eclectic mix, and I think we did a pretty good job of it. It's hard, though, from a producer. So, you're, you know, you wear all the hats. You always have, even 
movie star, but like, where do you fit in the, you know, you're a writer and you're a director and you're piecing together the creative and you realize the music's going to be critical. And then your does your producer mind come in and say like, man, some of these things are going to break the bank. Like that's a, that's a hard thing to be your own, you know, checks and balances there. Right. Can you take me through like how you balance all that or weave it together as you're going? Cause I think like the writer side would be like, I got to have X, Y, Z songs. And, and then maybe the producer side would be like, how am I like, that's going to crush me if I try to get the performance rights and you know, all that. Uh, Yeah. Well, that was, you know, that, that was one of the big challenges because again, this is, you know, this is another smaller indie movie. We did not have a huge budget and I knew how important music was going to be to this film. So, you know, when we were looking at our budget and and again, having done this for a long time now, you know, I kind of know what the, the kind of tracks that I wanted to use what they were going to cost, even if I could call in some favors. So when we sat down to do our budget, you know, I had that overall number in my head that said, all right, if if I'm going to have 10 needle drops in this film, we need to set that money aside. So we're going to make, you know, the the production budget is going to be cut by, you know, $750,000 almost. Right. Um, And then, then you have to weigh that against, well, all right, in order to make this, by, by not putting that 750 up on screen, how do we make this movie? And one of the things that we had to do was we had to cut a number of days from the shooting schedule. Now, you know, we made this movie in 22 days. Oh, man. And, you know, I'm used to working on, you know, small schedules like that. I mean, you know, that movie Newlyweds we talk about, I think I shot that in 12 days. But that's a very different kind of film. That's a contemporary yeah. film, handheld shot on a 5D. What did you shoot this one on? So this we shot on the red, you know, but this also, you know, there's a number of different locations in this. Everything is period. Uh, it's yeah. a big ensemble. Uh, so I would say like, as much as I, this movie like achieved what I was going for in that, you know, uh, I wanted to make a movie that put a smile on your face or yeah. some other critic said, uh, you know, the movie feels like a day at the beach, right? Uh-huh. Like that was the goal that I had in mind, but it's one of the few films that I've ever made where the actual making of the film was, uh, I don't want to say it wasn't fun. Uh, <laughs> it was hard. It's it was harder. Hard. Yeah. It, I was going to say, I didn't even, I didn't even go to the place of, Oh, he's got real music. He has to get like classic real music. Plus he's got the period. Cause it's actually a long time. I don't think of this period as, as long ago as it is. It is very long ago now. And so it's harder to get the world to be that world. A simple thing of, you know, uh, Caitlin Stacy's character riding her bicycle on the boardwalk. All right. We had to find a stretch of boardwalk that, you know, post Sandy on Long Island that still had the wood planks. Oh, right. Because so much of them had been replaced by these new sort of synthetic planks. But then, you know, when she's riding on the beach and you see the beach behind her, nothing back there could be contemporary. So you're having to clear out, you know, uh, a half mile of beach and put, if people are going to be in the background there, they had to be wearing period bathing suits and period umbrellas. Right. So a simple little shot like that, you know, when you're, when you're taking, when you're recreating 1982, it gets very costly very quickly. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So this is goes back to the other, you're so good at breaking all of this down. You know, our audience, we're speaking to so many people who look and think about making film in these terms. Like, so it's really interesting to get into the weeds with you. But I, I, so I have to ask, like, when even you're thinking about that, you hit a point where you're like, okay, I really need this shot. Like, this is not one I can get rid of because you could also easily think, I assume like, yeah, that's a big one. And my days are, are crunched as they are and I can let it go. How do you decide this is what this is a need, this is a deal breaker and I'll go to any lengths or this is the lengths I'll go to? It's interesting, you know, my my DP Will Rexer who I've been working with since uh, 2003 and Aaron Lubin my producer that I've been working with even longer than that. We when we're putting together our schedule, we sit down with the script and we, we identify the scenes that are the scenes that we know we cannot take our, let's say, our low-budget run-and-gun approach to. Mm, we identify, so what we really do is we identify the scenes that we know like, okay, this is a transitional scene or this is a short little funny scene. This is not going to require any heavy lifting by the actors. And those are ones that we'll identify to try and shoot either as a one which is basically just one camera setup mm-hmm. where it will have no coverage, or if there will be any coverage, it's going to be a simple medium shot and two singles. And we set a goal that we need to get in and out of that scene as quickly as possible. Mm. And we, like, let's say on a day where we're shooting the, um, the block party scene, right? Mm-hmm. which was a very complicated scene that we shot in one night. The, the, the morning of that day, we filled with sort of the shorter run-and-gun simple scenes so that we knew we didn't shoot ourselves in the foot and potentially hurt the more important scene that we have to do that day. Right. So those are the kind of, that's from a scheduling standpoint, we identify scenes that you'll shoot quickly and efficiently or if we fall behind, that's a scene that we'd be willing to cut from the film. And that's always a tough thing to do, like to cut a film from your, to, excuse me, cut a scene from your schedule while you're shooting. But, you know, uh, when you're making movies on these budgets and on these schedules, sometimes you have to do that. It sounds like part of the key is the dynamic the three of you have developed over time where you speak a language and understand and can, and can make these, ga- these strategic the strategic calculus in advance and then go to battle knowing like we're all on the same page, you know? Uh, Yeah. And I think it it helps that, you know, all of us are sort of realists, you know, like we're, we're pragmatic in our approach in that. Yes. Ideally we could have 45 days to make this movie and, you know, we could be working with two cameras and we could have, you know, we could wait for the perfect light. But, you know, for young filmmakers, and it was something I had to learn, the more you're willing to um, shift gears or rethink a scene, 
because you're running out of time or you're running out of money or you're, you, you don't have the schedule you have, you, you quickly discover that th- those are, that is the skill set you need as an indie filmmaker. You, yeah. know, you, don't, you, you, you can't throw out everything, obviously. You can't just make compromises all the time, but you have to recognize the compromises I'm going to make on Monday and Tuesday will afford me the time to ensure that Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday are great days. Right. Yeah. And you've been, this is, this is kind of another kind of larger question. You might have to reflect back a little, but you said when you saw like the El Mariachis, you thought, oh, you can do this. But actually at that time, it was quite challenging to do what you did and what he did, what Robert Rodriguez did. You guys were, you were on the front, you were the early adopters of something and that now has become in a lot of ways easier to do. And you've been doing it You've done it at all scales this whole time. Is there something like you can you can speak to or or talk about in the way that all the technology has changed uh, the ability to do the indie film on a budget, the compromises you make, or do you find that at its core there's some really simple things that are exactly the same as they were since the beginning? Huh. Well, you know, I mean, it, it is absolute. I don't want to say, but but it is. It, I mean, it is so much the barrier. Uh, to entry is non-existent anymore in the right. way that it was back then, right? I mean, the fact that you can pick up your iPhone yeah. and <laughs> shoot something that is absolutely gorgeous <laughs> and then take that footage and dump it into your laptop and cut it and play with effects and do your mix and, and then upload that, you know, that night <laughs> is just kind of mind-blowing. You know, right. like back with, you know, McMullen, I mean, you know, like, to give you an idea of how tough that was, I had to re-enroll. It was it was cheaper for me to re-enroll in Hunter College for one class to get a student ID so that I could then <laughs> buy recanned film stock, which they would only sell to students. And those were the 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 film, the short ends that were left over, 16 millimeter, from all the music videos and commercials that were being shot in New York. Yeah, so you would buy basically these scraps, <laughs> but you know, I, I don't. You know, maybe uh, one out of every twenty rolls of that that uh, recan stock had inadvertently already been exposed when the Ugh. when the camera assistant you know uh, put it took it out of the film uh, the camera Flash, magazine yeah. and put it back into the can. So just that in a, in and of itself was such an enormous challenge, like getting the film stock to put in a camera to shoot. Is something today's film mag- filmmaker doesn't even need to think about, and then forget about just like you know, cutting on film and how impossible that was. So for me, I look at it as like, um, and it's why I think I've, I've you know as the technology changes, I've always tried to embrace it, and I keep going back and making, you know, not that this was a micro budget movie, but I you know I love making micro budget movies with three men, three person crews. It sounds like newlyweds kind of was or was closer to that oh without a doubt that without a doubt yeah and it's because it's exciting that yeah with this technology you don't need the big machine more more importantly you don't need to ask anybody to write you a check which means you can then you know make the film you want to make and cast the actors that you love so for me i think it's just like if you're a young filmmaker now this is a great time to be to be making movies and the other thing is you now can do what, you know, 
painters and and songwriters were were able to do. You know, you pick up your guitar and you write a song, and if it stinks, you know, it just sits on you know, uh, I guess now on your phone, on and your you hard can, drive or your phone yeah. or your cloud, <laughs> and you can just keep writing songs until you feel like you get it right. You can do that now with short films. I've never heard it put that way, but it's true. It's not an all-in endeavor the way it would have been. Yeah. I mean, back then when you made that movie, you had to, that was it. There was, you were not going to get another chance unless that film was successful. Nobody else was going to give you $25,000 to do it again, to see if you could actually make the second one work, you know? Yeah, I think even still, this an observation, I think even still some people get paralyzed by the idea that they need all that stuff. And I think your spirit, your creative independent spirit has made it so you never were waiting for that. You were always going out and getting it. And so you're still, even after all the success, you're still like, I still want to just go out and get it when I want to try something. It's good for filmmakers of all ages to be reminded, like, you don't have to wait for anybody, you know? And, you know, I mean, I, I know I did it when I was a young guy just starting out. You know, you would, I would look to those lower budgeted or smaller scale movies as sort of templates and inspiration to, you know, there was this movie called like All the Vermeers in New York, which was like a John Jost movie from the early mm. 90s. It's a really small, simple, beautiful film. And that was one where I was, I, I'd look at, or, you know, even like I was a bit in film school, I love Truffaut. And I would just look at, okay, that's a simple walk and talk. Two characters just walking mm. down a street in Paris. There's no coverage. It goes on for two minutes. Like I can do my version of that with, you know, you know, two of the McMullen brothers. Like it doesn't yeah. need to be any more complicated than that. So even if you aspire to make action films or thrillers or, you know, uh, big special effects movies and, and you, you're just not in the place where you can afford to do that. Now sit down and write the simple thing just because like, like a, like any musician or a painter or a poet, you know, the more you do it, the better you get to go out and just make films now that cost you nothing. You're just going to become a better storyteller. You're going to become a better technician. You know, even if you're just doing a simple dialogue scene with three characters, you're going to discover something in the editing of that scene that you may apply to the editing of a dialogue scene when you get the chance to direct a Marvel movie 15 yeah. years from now. So um, none of it is wasted time. And now it doesn't cost you anything. And I'm curious, you know, from the writing standpoint, because you've writ you write so much of these, of course, direct and produce, but what as a writer are sort of your like principal, like, you know, how do you stick to it? How do you know you've got something? Like you say, I have you have the list of movie ideas. I assume you pursue some of them to a certain extent. Maybe then, like, how do you know after a draft, you're like, this is going to be a good one. This is one I have to really invest in. Or, you know, what are your sort of, your own creative process as a writer? How yeah. do you identify the good ideas, you know? Well, a couple of different things. You know, I mean, I, I try to write every day and I'm pretty disciplined about, setting up a time, which is usually like 10 to one every day is my, you just need to sit down and work on the thing that you're working on. So, you know, over the course of, let's say any two or three month period, I might be writing three different screenplays because, you know, I, I might be starting a brand new one with a new idea that I'm very excited on and I just can't crack it. 
right? Mm. And I'm like, you know what? Uh, to to your point, like maybe this maybe this idea isn't all that great, but I'm not going to spend the next day just staring at that blank page. So w- when I do hit the wall on one script, you know, I probably have, you know, I have probably 25 unproduced screenplays, and you know, I kind of I'm always kind of going through my rolodex of which is the one that I you know that I've spent enough time away from that I know I'll be excited to jump back in. Does, it, does there always, ever is there ever one that was left back in the in the archives that you're like, oh my god, I've got it. This one's going to be great now, and it like works out. Um, I mean that that happens all the time. Wow, that's pretty um, cool. Then to feel yeah. like one day's failure becomes like a future year's source of inspiration and and happiness. <laughs> uh, yeah, and sometimes you know for any number of reasons, the time just isn't right for you to either finish that script or go to the marketplace with that script. Hmm. You know, the other great thing that happens if if you're if you're willing to just commit to writing and not think that oh my god, this script I'm writing now has to be the movie that I'm going to make next is when you walk away from something that you have been so passionate about and you spent all that time on and let's say you give it to, you know, one of your your friends or advisors who's who's good with giving you notes. And we've all experienced this as writers. You know, you get you get their notes after you've just finished this thing and you want to strangle this person. Because <laughs> how could they not see how brilliant this was? And what do you mean that scene doesn't work? And what do you mean the middle of it's boring? But when you put that script down and you pick it up six months later and you have forgotten how much work you put into it and how long it took you to write that final sequence, it becomes so much easier to just look at it more objectively and recognize, okay, huh, my first act is actually pretty solid, but my second act kind of just drags along here. All right, I think I know what to do here. I'll cut this, I'll cut this, I'll cut this. I'm totally fine rewriting that scene because I'm not bored with these characters anymore. So, you know, that, that, I mean, again, and that, that, that process of, let's say juggling three different scripts at any one time doesn't work for a lot of people, but I found it, I found it very helpful for me. That said, there have been scripts like my second movie. She's the one, you know, that was one that just um, poured out of me in three weeks. I made that, did, you know, a handful of rewrites on it, but that was one that just kind of just, I spit out. So. And that's kind of, that was good timing, right? Because brothers McMullen, I, I mean, I'm, there's so many things I wish we had so much time to talk about, but it must've been crazy, you know, winning Sundance launched into this like sudden awareness thing, the experience of that after desperately getting the short ends on the 16 millimeter <laughs> stock. Right. And it's nice because I know and from people I've talked to and just life experience, there's that kind of like, okay, what's next thing, right? Like you, you burst in, but then what? Well, so was, was she's the one just like sitting there in your mind and you were like, boom, I'm ready. I, Kind of, but it was interesting, you know, so like McMullen, after we, after I make McMullen, I send that out to every agent, manager, distribution company, film festival, it gets rejected everywhere for almost a year. Oh, I didn't know that part of it. Wow. Yeah. Um, so I had this idea in my head that I would just do an, and I really, you know, I mean, I, I, I kind of thought I, I love the movie and I kind of like that, let's say that milieu I was working in. And I forget, I had seen a couple, I, I saw some Neil Simon play during that time. And I was like, oh, okay, I got it. I'm going to rewrite Brothers McMullen, another film like that, and just make it funnier. 
you know, <laughs> and I'll try and do like sort of Neil Simon kind of faster, snappier dialogue. So when we get into Sundance with McMullen, producer named James Seamus said to me, he's like, Eddie, look, the two weeks that you're up there in Park City will be the hot, you, that will be the hottest you will ever be in your career. He goes, I don't know if you have written any other scripts, but if you don't, you better get started on one because they're going to say to you, kind of like you just said, what do you want to do next? And he goes, and if you can hand them something, odds are you're going to sell it while you're up there. So we never thought that we would sell McMullen. So that's when I was like, you know what? I'm going to sit down and I'll write that Neil Simon version of Irish brothers bickering and, you know, bantering. So wrote, wrote she's the one in those three weeks, took it up to Sundance and we sell McMullen and then to Fox Searchlight and then Tom Rothman at Fox Searchlight, Greenlit, she's the one as well. Wow. Yeah. So it happened very fast, but you were ready. You came armed. That's the yeah, thing. <laughs> came armed. And who knows, you know, like when you're, I was 26 then. So when you're 26 and like someone says, you better have a screenplay in three weeks because you're going to sell it. That's, that's the kind of fire that I don't know you could. If you can yeah. recapture it. How, how does anyone replicate the, the excitement and energy of going to your, you're going to Sundance and you're going to sell whatever you write in the next three weeks. Yeah. Um, by the way, you'll be in a Steven Spielberg movie in a couple of years. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so let me go back to where we are now, though, and and like shooting summer days, summer nights. And you've done a lot of TV. In in addition to everything kind of changing in terms of like being an independent filmmaker, you've worked a lot in TV in a number of ways, you know, directing, writing, acting. But the streaming stuff has changed things. Like from the perspective as you know an indie auteur telling stories in one format shifting to this other it seems like a place of a lot of opportunity now like what are your reflections and thoughts on it i i mean i i think it's just fantastic opportunities for filmmakers indie or otherwise you know for me i got very lucky with this show that i do on epics and we just got we're actually in pre-production on season 2 because you know, they came to me and they wanted a, a kind of like what I do, you know, an yeah. ensemble, talky comedy drama that's grounded in the real world. That's also, you know, uh, nostalgic and romantic. So it was kind of like a, quite honestly, like a, a filmmaker's gift Yeah, come to you and say, Hey, can you do a show for us? That feels like your movies. Um, <laughs> And, you know, we'll give you basically full creative control and you can work with your friends and cast the <laughs> actors that you, you know, love and adore. So, and, and, but the, the fun thing for me, this is my, my second television show. I did a cop show a couple of years ago called Public Morals. As, as someone who loves writing. So you wrote all, pu Public Morals is again, you created, you wrote. Did you direct a lot of it too? Yeah, you directed it and I you're directed, in it. Yeah, and now the same with Bridge and Tunnel, right? Yep. Yeah, exactly. You know, I kind of just approach that show and now Bridge and Tunnel as if it's a, a Bridge and Tunnel, it's six episodes each or a half hour. So I look at it as a three hour long giant ensemble that I I'm see. doing. And we don't shoot it episode to episode. We just shoot it as if it's one giant film. So story format, you're doing the same kind of storytelling you always do. Exactly. Yeah. And the only thing that's that that makes television sometimes a little bit more fun is that I can take that secondary character, you know, the best friend, if you will. Yeah. And give him or her a full life. 
Um, yeah. They're not there to just service the hero, you know? The, the yeah. ally in the story gets to have their own issues. Yeah. No, it's like a bigger canvas. I, you know, bef- uh, last thing, I mean, I, I, you're probably going to run out of time soon, but I want to ask because we've, we've kind of talked around it, but you, there must be a well you draw of, of, of confidence that because you are on camera often and because you're the director and it's your material, there are very few people who've pulled that off like over and over again, you know, in, in filmmaking history, really. And I imagine it's very difficult to, to develop the, those like, you know, eyes in the back of your, I don't know where your eyes are, <laughs> but like to be in multiple places wearing multiple hats, but have the confidence that it's like, well, you know, I'm playing this part and I'm directing this movie from on a very basic level. And I'm, and I wrote these words. Do you have some sounding boards with you always that like maybe your DP or something, or do you have your own, you know, ability to say like, I can accurately judge my own work and decide like, I mean, obviously you've been able to. So I yeah. guess what I'm asking is how? Like, it just seems like really hard to do effectively and honestly. Say, the, the answer to your question is, is yes and yes. You know, I mean, I do have the sounding board. So, you know, Will Rexer, my DP, but then even more so Aaron Lubin, my producing partner, you know, they, when, when I'm acting in a scene, you know, I, I'll discuss what I'm trying to do as an actor in that scene beforehand so that they can just keep an eye on me. Mm. And, you know, if, if, if I'm not doing what, what I told them I'm trying to do, then they will pull me aside and say, hey, look, you didn't quite nail it on that take. Or uh, a lot of times they'll just step in and say, hey, do you know, you're, you might want to try it this way or you might want to try it that way. So again, and, you know, these are two of my best friends in the world and, mm. and my two longest collaborators. So, you know, what, you know we have just a, a, a great creative relationship. The other thing is, you know, like as an actor, you know, like if you look at all the films I've made, I've basically played a version of the same guy, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and I don't do any real heavy lifting or heavy emoting. I'm playing a version of a guy who's kind of, you know, you know, whatever, some sort of wise ass. Right. I'm not, I'm not trying the comparison to make you, but I mean, Chaplin played the same guy. (laughs) I guess that's simplified things. That was a little bit more challenging than what I do. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, you know, and, and also because like, I really do love acting and I I love acting in my own stuff, but I kind of know, you know, like I play a lot of basketball. So it'd be like, I'm a guy who (laughs) at this point in my career, you just put me out there to grab a couple of rebounds and set some picks. <laughs> you know what I mean? I you know like you're wrong. Get the, and get the shooters life, open. That's what I do. <laughs> you know, um, that said, any actor will tell you, you know, when you are in a scene with another actor and even when you're, when, when you're really in it, like you, when the director calls cut, you'll sometimes look to your co-star and you're like, oh yeah, that was it, right? Yeah, no, I totally <laughs> felt it. Like, you know Again, almost to, to make another uh, comparison to to basketball, like when the team is playing well and you're in the flow state, it's obvious to everybody that's on the court. And it's yeah. the same thing with everybody on set, the actors yeah. in the scene. You just know like, okay, that was the take, right? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, any actor can feel that. So I think when I'm acting with my other actors and I'm also directing, uh, for whatever reason, I think I've just always had the ability to kind of, and maybe it's just because I also, you know, because I write these scripts, 
you know, I know the dialogue. I know the dialogue inside and out. I know yeah, everything. I'm, I'm, because I've seen every scene play in my mind's eye, you know, a hundred times before. So, like, right. I'm, you know, I don't, I, I don't know how to describe it, but I'm in it in a different way. So that if they're not quite finding it, even if I'm acting opposite them, I can recognize it immediately. Yeah, no, I, it's, it's, when you described it in the basketball metaphor, I thought, oh, if you see yourself sort of as like, hey, I'm just going to set pick a pick for the other actor here to shine. Well, then you can easily tell if you did, and you're not going to look out up after the play and say like, oh, I should have done, like, I'm the focal point of this in some way. Like you're trying to be in it and help them find the flow state yeah. from, from within. It makes total sense to me, yeah. Well, I, I really appreciate you being on. It's been a lot of fun. There's a lot more we could talk about. I'm excited for this to be out there. And thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks so much to Ed for coming on the show. Thank you all for listening. Be sure to check out all of our other interviews and our weekly podcast. They drop on Tuesdays and Thursdays, respectively. Head over to nofilmschool.com. Read about all kinds of filmmaking stories, news and cameras, gear, Hollywood, the industry, educational tools and tips. Follow us on Twitter. Like us on Facebook. Check us out on Instagram. Head over to our YouTube channel where we have, as I've said many times, an amazing video our own Todd Blankenship did on creating Really cool special effects with miniatures in Premiere Pro. He worked with Adobe on this one, and it's awesome. And we will look forward to hearing from you. Thanks so much. 